So we are in the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament, continuing our verse-by-verse study through this amazing book of the Bible. And so we'll be in chapter 13 today. Well, recently I heard about a man who wrote two best-selling books about humility. And the titles of those books were quite interesting. The first book he titled, Humility and How I Attained It. The title of his second book was even better. The five most humble people in the world and how I found the other four. Well, last Sunday, as we studied the first 17 verses of John 13, uh, we were able to see real humility in action. Amen? Amen. Humility was on full display as Jesus was in the upper room enjoying the Last Supper with his 12 disciples. He didn't have much time. In less than 24 hours, he would be dead. And he knew it. So as Jesus shared one last meal with his disciples, he made every moment count. Everything he said was strategic. Everything he did was vitally important, including what he did in verses 4 and 5 there in chapter 13. Jesus got up from the dinner table. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin, got down on his hands and knees, and began to wash his disciples' stinky feet and dry them with the towel that was wrapped around him. After washing all 24 gnarly-looking feet, he returns to his place at the table, and he says this, beginning in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 18 of John chapter 13. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. Here we are, beginning in verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at each other at, a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. May God bless us as we study his word together today. Well, verse 18 doesn't mark the beginning of a new teaching. Jesus is simply continuing his teaching from the first five verses. 
the prior five verses, I should say. So the disciples' jaws are still on the floor. They're still flabbergasted that their teacher, their master, their Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, has just been down on his hands and knees getting up close and personal with their toe jam. Their jaws are still on the floor. They're still just dumbfounded by what has just happened. But Jesus doesn't skip a beat. As he's teaching, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In essence, he says, nobody at this table is greater than anyone else at this table. Nobody inside this room is greater than anyone outside this room. So humbly serve each other and go out into the world and humbly serve everyone who God places in your path. And Jesus continues in verses 17 and 18. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. But I am not referring to all of you. Well, that's a little nugget of information we didn't learn before. Is Jesus basically saying here, if you humbly serve each other, you will be blessed unless you're the guy who won't be blessed. That's pretty much what he's saying. If you humbly serve each other, you will be blessed unless you're that poor fool of a fella who won't be blessed. Beginning in verse 18, Jesus will reveal that there is a traitor in their midst. One of the 12 disciples sitting at the table has feet that are every bit as clean as the other disciples' feet. And he appears to be just as committed to Jesus as the other 11, but looks can be deceiving, can't they? Have you discovered that? Some people look awfully good on the outside, but Jesus looks right to the heart. Looks can be deceiving. One of the disciples is a hypocrite. He looks like the perfect believer and follower of Jesus on the outside. He looks like the perfect disciple, the perfect apostle, but on the inside in his heart, he doesn't even believe in Jesus. He doesn't even believe in Jesus. He confesses Christ with his mouth, but he denies him in his heart. He's been baptized in water, but his baptism was meaningless because his heart had no faith. Like the other disciples, Jesus had blessed him when they went out two by two with the ability to open the eyes of the blind and heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and drive out demons. Imagine that. Judas Iscariot is able to drive out demons when all the while he's opened his heart's door wide so that the prince of demons himself, Satan, can come inside at any time. It's remarkable, isn't it? Jesus says in verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you because I know those I have chosen. Isn't that interesting? I know those I have chosen. I was reminded of that well-known verse when I read this, Matthew twenty-two fourteen, where Jesus says, Many are called, but few are, are chosen. You've heard this before, but what on earth does that mean? Many are called, but few are chosen. Well, I take it to mean that Jesus in love calls every man, woman, and child on earth. He calls them to hear the good news of Jesus and believe and receive the good news of Jesus, but very few respond to that call, Right? Very few respond to the call. So think of it this way. Since only a few people, we'll put this on the screen for you. Since, next one. Since only a few people choose Jesus, only a few people are chosen by Jesus. In his perfect foreknowledge, he has chosen everyone to be saved who he knew would choose to be saved. Is that burning any brain cells yet? 
This gets into the whole Calvinism versus Arminianism argument. Does God pick and choose who's going to be saved, or does he give us the opportunity to choose him? In a sense, it is really both. Physically, Jesus had chosen Judas Iscariot to be one of his 12 disciples, but spiritually, Judas was not among the chosen, was he? Interesting. He was a chosen disciple, but he really wasn't a chosen, saved Christian. Before Judas was even born, Jesus knew that he would reject his offer of salvation and betray him, no matter how many chances Jesus gave Judas to trust in him and give his heart to him. Judas would continue on his reckless path of betraying Jesus. Therefore, because Judas didn't choose Jesus, Jesus didn't choose Judas. Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel Against me. Here Jesus is quoting from King David. King David, 1,000 years earlier, had written in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, who was David referring to in his day? Who had betrayed him? I think most likely he was referring to a guy by the name of Ahithophel. So, Ahithophel, you may not remember who that dude is. He's the guy that was uh, David's most trusted advisor and friend for many years. He was a godly man. He was a trusted man. So David considered him a close friend. But remember when David's son decided to kill him and to steal the throne from him, when Absalom was leading his revolt, Ahithophel betrayed David and went over to David's son who was trying to kill him. And David was heartbroken that his good friend and advisor had left him for the traitor. And so I think in that case, he was probably referring to Ahithophel, but unbeknownst to David, he was at the same time prophesying what would happen to be a greater betrayal 1,000 years later as Jesus Christ would be betrayed. Now, what does David mean when he uses this phrase, he lifted up his heel against me, and Jesus repeats this phrase, uh, there's a traitor in our midst who's going to lift up his heel against me. What does that mean? Well, scholars disagree on what it means, but let me show you a very quick video clip that gives you one likely possibility of what it means to have someone lift up their heel against you. David, I said don't get behind him. Get up, get up. Get up here in front of him. Any questions? No child was permanently injured in the filming of this video. Pretty clear, isn't it? Heel is lifted, bam. We all know that if you stand behind a horse who decides to kick, there have been cases where horses have broken bones, broken ribs, fractured skulls, and even killed people when that foot was lifted and kicked. So that very well could be what Jesus and even what King David had in mind. Judas Iscariot was lifting his heel and was going to kick Jesus Christ in the gut. It was going to hurt him deeper than we know. Well, why did Jesus believe it was so important at the Last Supper to let his disciples know there was a traitor in their midst? Well, look at verse 19. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Bottom line, Jesus was giving his disciples the 411 to increase their faith. 
Jesus knew that over the next 24 hours, his disciples' faith would be shaken to the core. They'll be heartbroken. They'll be scared. They're going to be confused. They'll all ask each other, how could this have happened? I was convinced he was the son of God. I was convinced he was our Messiah who would set up his throne and rule eternally. How could this have happened? It shouldn't have happened. And why didn't Jesus anticipate that there was a traitor in our midst? Why didn't he know this if he's the all-knowing son of God? So here Jesus says, after one of you betrays me and that betrayal leads to my death, I want you to remember what I'm telling you right now. I know all about it ahead of time. Don't forget that. It's all part of God's plan. So allow this truth to strengthen your faith in me as the Christ and the Son of the living God. Everything that happened that didn't make any sense to you, I knew about every bit of it ahead of time. Verse 20, Jesus shares this marvelous little truth. He says, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So remember, Christians, that when you share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone and they reject it, they're not rejecting you, are they? Ultimately, they're rejecting Jesus Christ, and if they reject Jesus Christ, they're rejecting God the Father. And so it's also true in reverse, If someone is ready in their hearts to receive God the Father, if someone is ready in their hearts to receive the good news of Jesus Christ and take hold of salvation, therefore, they will listen to what you have to tell them about Jesus Christ as being Savior. Amen? Isn't that good news? Everyone out there who's ready to receive Jesus Christ is just waiting for someone to clearly tell them who Jesus Christ is and how to receive him. So when you think about it, there's everything to gain and very little to lose by us boldly going out into this world and telling people about Jesus. If they reject that message, you know what? They're not rejecting me. They're rejecting Jesus. It's not my fault. It's not on me, right? I've done my duty. But if I fail to, to, to preach the, the word of Jesus Christ, if I fail to tell people about Jesus, there will be people that are eternally lost. They were ready, but no one told them. And so we have to tell people about Jesus. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to be bold. There's so much to gain in telling people about him. Well, Jesus knows that his words aren't sinking in. The disciples have no clue what he's talking about. They don't have a clue. So with a deeply troubled spirit, likely with trembling lips, he tells them plainly in verse 20, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Now, the disciples are just barely getting over the shock of having Jesus wash their feet. They're just barely getting over that shock. And now Jesus drops another bombshell. One of you is going to betray me. And they're like, what? After three years of following you? Night and day, week after week, month after month, year after year, one of us is going to betray you? It it didn't make any sense to them. It blew their minds. And it says they start staring at each other. Wouldn't that have been an interesting scene to be a fly on the wall to watch? That's Rosie over there. Oh, no. It's Peggy back there. Oh, no, it's Don. It's Don. They're looking at each other, staring at each other. Can you imagine what these guys are saying under their breath? Maybe it's Matthew. Matthew, he's got those beady little eyes. Yeah. Matthew's got those beady little eyes. Oh, no, I don't think it's Bartholomew. Guys, what do we know about Bartholomew? We don't know anything about Bartholomew. 
Maybe it's Thomas. Oh, yeah, he's, he's been a doubter all along. Yeah, it must be Thomas. And, and so they're thinking, of, but there's no indication that anyone even considers the possibility that it's Judas Iscariot. Isn't that interesting? They're trying to figure out who it is. Huh. The disciples stare at each other, trying to figure out who it is. But it says in the text here, they were at a loss to know which of them Jesus meant. Well, curiosity killed the cat. You can always count on Peter to get involved and open his big mouth. It seems pretty clear that Peter couldn't ask Jesus this question himself because Peter was sitting on the opposite side of the table from Jesus and he didn't want to make a scene. So he somehow gets the attention of the guy who's sitting right next to Jesus, simply referred to here as the disciple who Jesus loved. We believe that to be John himself who wrote this gospel account. So he somehow ask him, ask him the question. So John figures out what the nonverbal communication is from Peter and he leans back on Jesus and he asks the question that Peter so much wanted to know the answer to. Who is it, Jesus? Who's the Benedict Arnold in our midst? Who is it? Who is it? Peter catches the attention of John. John leans back, asks the question. Verse 25, it says he leaned back, asked the question, Lord, who is it? And then in verse 26, Jesus responds, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then Jesus dips a piece of bread in a cup of sauce. Some call it sop, you know, kind of just a flavoring for that bread. He dips it in and then he hands it to Judas. Now let's consider for a moment the seating arrangement in this room. Now, when Jesus had that banquet in Bethany back in the last chapter where Lazarus was in attendance, we had this same picture up. I want us to look at this again. So as a reminder, some of you weren't here a few weeks ago. In those days, they didn't sit in chairs at tall tables when they ate. They had a very short table that rested on the floor, and they sat on pillows and mats, and they didn't actually sit. They reclined. So remember the position. They leaned on their left arm. Legs were back behind them and their right arm was free so they could reach onto the table to eat, okay? So let's consider the position at the table. We're pretty sure Peter was on the opposite side of the table from Jesus because he couldn't ask Jesus the question himself. Who's on Jesus' right-hand side? Well, if they're leaning like this on their left arm, the guy that leans back against Jesus and asks him the question, who is it, had to have been John. So John is sitting on Jesus' right-hand side. So, interesting, Jesus, because one arm was tied up, leaning on his left arm, he couldn't reach very far with one arm, right? And so the question is, where was Judas sitting? There's no indication in the text that Jesus gets up from the mat he's reclining on, goes to another side of the table to hand the bread to Judas. Every indication is that he was able, right from where he was, to hand it to Judas. So many Bible scholars believe that we had John on Jesus' right-hand side, and Judas Iscariot right next to Jesus on the left. So he was able to take the bread, dip it, and simply hand it over. And you know what? In ancient times, especially in Israel, the person seated on your left was in the most prominent position because you would lean back against that person's chest. Pretty, pretty amazing, huh? That Judas Iscariot, it seems, was sitting in the most prominent position place at the table right next to Jesus Christ huh Jesus knows ahead of time 
that Judas Iscariot is going to betray him. And Jesus seems to have strategically placed Judas Iscariot at the most honored position at that table, knowing full well he was going to betray him. That's pretty wild to me. William Barclay says it this way. He writes, The revealing thing is that the place on the left of the host was the place of highest honor, kept for the most intimate friend. When that meal began, Jesus must have said to Judas, Judas, come and sit beside me tonight. I want specially to talk to you. The very inviting of Judas to that seat was an appeal, but there is more for the host to offer the guest a special tidbit, a special morsel from the dish was again a sign of special friendship. It's so good. And then Chuck Swindoll adds this little insight. He writes, this was Jesus' final act of grace to Judas. He had washed the man's feet and given him the place of honor by his side. Then, despite the sin in the traitor's heart, the Lord offered him fellowship. I tell you, friends, this is one of those passages that makes me fall in love with Jesus Christ once again. Jesus is an amazing, loving Savior. Would you have ever done what Jesus does here at the Last Supper for Judas Iscariot? I don't know that I would. Amazing the mercy and grace he has on Judas Iscariot. And I think about this. After all that Jesus had done for Judas, choosing him to be one of his honored 12 disciples, of all the thousands in Israel that would have jumped at the opportunity for Jesus to choose them, Judas was one of the 12 Jesus had chosen. Jesus had chosen him in grace. He had taught him in grace. He had protected him in grace. He had loved him in grace and offers him the gift of salvation over and over and over again. Judas Iscariot still, after all of that, refuses to scrap his plans to betray Jesus. After all that Jesus had done for him, he still leaves the door of his heart wide open for Satan. Which is why verse 27 is one of the saddest verses in the book of John. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. With love and deep disappointment in his eyes, Jesus says to Judas, What you are about to do, do quickly. Translation, Judas, if you're dead set on betraying me, get on with it. Judas takes the bread from Jesus, and as soon as he takes that bread, he gets up from the table Satan has entered him by then. He gets up from the table, leaves the room, and disappears into the night. And there's deep symbolism in that wording that John uses here. He disappears into the night. He goes into the night. Tragically, he leaves the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and begins to follow the marching orders of the prince of darkness, Satan himself. He leaves the lit upper room and goes into the night and... He leaves the light of the world and follows the prince of darkness. Well, in verses 28 and 29, John lets us know that the other 11 apostles are clueless. They suspect each other of being traitors, but evidently nobody suspects Judas. After all, he was Jesus' treasurer. Certainly Jesus trusted him because Judas kept the money bag. He counted all the donations. He dispersed all the donations when purchases had to be made. Certainly it couldn't be Judas. Judas, look at him. He's in the prominent place next to Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus picks out a piece of bread and dips it in the sop and hands it to Judas. He didn't hand a special piece of bread to anyone else. 
Judas is in this prominent position. It can't be Judas. There's no way it could be Judas. You know, over the centuries, a different Christian artists have painted pictures of what they think Judas Iscariot looked like. And oftentimes when they paint a, a picture of Judas Iscariot, uh, he looks kind of like this. Creepy looking fella, huh? And then once he gets to the Last Supper and Satan enters him, they may paint him more like this. <laughs> He's as ugly as Gollum. He's creepy looking, right? Well, imagine. Let's go back to this last photo. So imagine if Judas Iscariot actually looked like this. When Jesus makes that great announcement, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. I guarantee you, if there was a disciple that looked like this guy, when he said, one of you is going to betray me, they would all in unison go, it's him. He's as ugly as sin, man. He's been creeping me out for three years. He didn't look like some creepy predator, did he? I love how the Chosen series depicts Judas Iscariot. Can you picture him in your mind? Some of you might be able to. This is how they depict Judas Iscariot. Kind eyes. Warm smile. Rather handsome. That's Judas Iscariot. I think that's a pretty accurate depiction. No one suspected Judas because he looked like a regular guy. He talked like a regular guy. He had the glow in his eyes. And some people say, I, I can just tell if someone's a good person or not and oftentimes people when they say that they are dead wrong jesus had trained and groomed those other 11 apostles and all 11 of them were dead wrong about judas iscariot he was a betrayer in their midst he looked the part but he was full of dead men's bones despite how many chances jesus gave him judas iscariot never repented he never trusted in jesus and in less than 24 hours, Jesus wouldn't be the only one at the table who would be dead. Judas Iscariot would be hanging from a tree on the outskirts of Jerusalem, hanging in shame and regret that he never brought to Jesus. Well, we pick up in verse 31. Let's finish the chapter. Here in John 13:31, we read, When he was gone, Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are, you where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus' disciples have Barely gotten over the shock of Jesus washing their feet. Now they're trying to come to grips with a news flash that someone in their ranks is a traitor. 
But the clock keeps ticking, so Jesus keeps teaching. He speaks in verses 31 and 32 about being glorified. In Scripture, the word glorify oftentimes means to characterize. And so think about this. To glorify is to characterize. So Jesus is basically saying here, now is the Son characterized and God the Father is characterized in him. Undoubtedly, Jesus has the cross in mind. But not just the cross, he has the empty tomb in mind on Resurrection Sunday. And he even has his ascension into heaven in mind. So that begs the question, how did the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension of Jesus characterize God? I'm so glad you asked that question. How do those things characterize God? Well, let's focus on the cross first of all. The cross displays for the whole world to see the great love and the wisdom of God. Say that with me. The cross displays for the whole world to see the great love and the wisdom of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The cross of Jesus Christ shows the great character trait of God that God is love. Remember Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. It's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. He lays down his life for his friends and surprisingly, even his enemies. Amen. Amen. And it turns out we're all enemies until we receive that gift of friendship from him. So the cross displays the, the great love of Jesus Christ, but it also displays the wisdom of God. It, it's just mind-blowing when you try to think about it. We talk about the cross all the time, so sometimes we don't really meditate on what the cross means because it's just so familiar to us. But think about this. Uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull, a place where common criminals, felons, were crucified. At, at one of the most odd places a place of torture and death for common criminals. It's at that place that God's perfect love and His perfect wrath somehow meet. God's perfect grace and His perfect justice somehow meet at the foot of the cross. They're at the place of the skull. That's just mind-blowing to me that a place like that could display the great wisdom of God that when the wrath and the judgment of God is bearing down on us, that his cross can atone for the sin that we've committed. The empty tomb, it displays Jesus' power. And Jesus' ascension displays his authority over heaven and earth. In verse 33, Jesus reiterates something he had taught his disciples in recent months. He basically says, my time is short. I'll only be with you a little while longer. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And then in verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives his disciples one of the most important commands he had ever given them. Look again at what he says. Love one another. Say that with me. Love one another. Well, how do we do that? Well, he says, love one another as I have loved you. Huh. As I have loved you, you also must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, we'll talk more about this vital command in a couple minutes, but let's move on to verse 36. Our favorite mouthy disciple, Simon Peter, speaks up. Lord, where are you going? Notice he has completely missed 
this new great command that Jesus gave him in verses 34 and 35. He's still fixated on what Jesus had said in verse 33. Because in verse 33, remember what Jesus said, My time is short, I'll only be with you a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. All of a sudden, his eyes glaze over, and as Jesus starts talking about the great command, he ignores all of it. He just hears, wah, 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 wah. As soon as Jesus stops talking to take a breath, he blurts in, Where are you going? Where are you going? And, and Jesus must be thinking, Peter, did you not just hear what I just said? Which was so much more important than what you're fixated on. But Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, he responds to Peter. He responds to Peter. He, Peter says, Lord, where are you, go, where are you going? I, I, I want to follow you. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus tells him, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. What's he referring to? He's referring to Peter's own crucifixion that'll be some 34 years down the road. Peter was not at a point when he, where he was going to lay down his life for Jesus. In fact, by the time the night was over, he will have denied Jesus three times. But 34 years down the road, he would have that wonderful privilege to follow in Jesus' footsteps and be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Unlike Judas Iscariot, Peter believed in Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. And so badly wanted to be faithful to Jesus. But despite his good intentions, he would in fact deny Jesus three times by sunup the next morning. Well, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives us this wonderful new command. And this vital command is simply, as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. So I want us to take a look at three ways that Jesus calls us to love each other as Jesus has loved us. First way, love other Christians selflessly and sacrificially. Say that with me. Love other Christians selflessly and sacrificially. It's not surprising the Greek word used for love here is the Greek word agape. Not surprising at all because agape is the highest form of love. Agape love, by definition, really is selfless love. It's sacrificial love. It's love that's putting your needs above my own needs. That's the kind of love that Jesus had for us. And that's the kind of love he calls us to have for each other. Agape love is always others-centered, never self-centered. Agape love is always selfless, never selfish. Jesus didn't think of himself. He was always thinking of others. He perfectly lived out Paul's words in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Oh, so much good takes place in the church when we love each other with an agape kind of love. When we love each other selflessly and sacrificially. Uh, you've heard the old expression, Give until it hurts, right? Well, you could also say love until it hurts. You see, agape love isn't agape love unless it hurts even just a little bit. Agape love always has a little bit of pain in it because it involves sacrifice. It involves selflessness. It involves a giving up of something that we want for ourselves, but we surrender it for the good of others. Love until it hurts. Love until it hurts. 
love selflessly and sacrificially. Number two, Jesus, I believe, calls us to love other Christians understandingly. Say that with me. Love other Christians understandingly. Like you mean it. Love other Christians understandingly. Think again about Jesus. For the last three years, as the all-knowing Son of God, He walked and talked and taught and invested in those disciples, and He knew everything about those dudes, didn't He? He knew every flaw, every sin, every shortcoming, every little inkling of stupidity and ignorance and foot and mouth syndrome in the case of Peter. He knew all of that, yet he loves them with an agape love anyway. Isn't that interesting? Sadly, so many Christians do not love each other selflessly, sacrificially, and understandingly. Hmm. William Barclay says, Jesus had lived with his disciples day in and day out for many months, knew all that was to be known about them, and yet he still loved them. Sometimes we say that love is blind. That is not so. Real love is open-eyed. It loves not what it imagines people to be, but what they are. The heart of Jesus is big enough to love us as we are. Many Christians do not love understandingly. I will love you, brother, as long as you do not betray me. I'll love you, sister, as long as you don't start talking my ear off and driving me up the wall. Ever met a chatty Christian? Every one of you has who's met me. Won't that guy just shut up once in a while? It's easy to love people that talk when we want them to talk and do what we want them to do. And smile when we want them to smile and say amens and hallelujahs when we want them to say amens and hallelujah. It's easy to love people who do exactly what we want them to do. But agape love kicks in when Christians around us are letting us down and they smell and their attitude sometimes stinks and they talk too much and they've got a foul mouth and they foul up over and over And over again, Jesus knew every flaw and foible in his disciples, and yet he loved them anyway, because he loved them understandingly. We need to love each other understandingly. Agape love sees the stupidity in others and knows that some people are really hard to love, but agape love loves them anyway, just like Jesus. Finally, number three, love other Christians forgivingly. Say that with me. Love other Christians forgivingly. Tell the person next to you, love other Christians forgivingly. Oh, I dare say without forgiveness, there is no Christianity. If there is no deep forgiveness in your Christianity, your Christianity is not worth much. It's sad to me how many Christians refuse to forgive others who have betrayed them, who have stabbed them in the back, who have let them down. We must forgive each other. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive those who trespass against us. And remember what Jesus said after teaching the Lord's Prayer. He immediately says in Matthew six fourteen and 15, for you, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Ouch. Is Jesus actually saying that God's love Let me say it this way. Is Jesus actually saying that God's forgiveness is conditional? 
Absolutely, that's exactly what he's saying. God's forgiveness is conditional. If you refuse to forgive others, God will refuse to forgive you. The first thing Jesus said as he hung on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If you expand that, he's saying, Father, forgive those soldiers who came into the Garden of Gethsemane with clubs and torches and arrested me unjustly. Father, forgive those members of the Sanhedrin who blindfolded me and spit on my face and slapped me upside the head while I was standing on this bogus trial. Father, forgive Pilate for washing his hands when he should have taken a stand for justice. Father, forgive those soldiers underneath the leadership of that centurion who tore pieces off of my back with the the scourging whips that they used when they whipped me. And forgive those soldiers right now at the foot of the cross who are gambling for my clothing as I hang here naked to die. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus forgave because Jesus loved. The church should be the easiest place in the world to find forgiveness. The church should be the best place in town to receive a second chance. This is a great time for amens, by the way. Let me read that again. I think some of you may have missed it. The church should be the easiest place in the world to find forgiveness. Completely unsolicited. That's so encouraging. The church should be the best place in town to receive a second chance. The go-to place to receive mercy and grace and a clean slate. And this should be obvious not only to Christians, but to our not yet saved friends and family members as well. Jesus longs for us to truly love one another with an agape love. And we should long for it too. This past week as I was meditating on this new command that Jesus gave us, I thought about that old chorus that was written years ago. Back in the 1960s it was written. And I hadn't thought about it in years, but it just popped back into my head. What a beautiful, simple little chorus that reminds us that we are to love each other. And by this, the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we love one another. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Yeah, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Lord Jesus, help us to do what you've called us to do. The more I think about what went on in that upper room, Lord, the the more it just blows my mind. Thank you. For your grace and mercy that you extended to Judas Iscariot time and time again. You're all knowing, Lord Jesus, you knew what he was going to do. 
But you gave him chance after chance after chance anyway, knowing full well that Satan was going to enter him and that he was going to leave the upper room and grab those soldiers to come and arrest you. Jesus, you gave him second chances, even in the upper room, even in those final minutes, as if to say, Judas, I know what you're going to do, but I hope to God that I'm wrong because I love you so much and I don't want you to die in your sin. But of course, Jesus, you weren't wrong. You're never wrong. But your love was that strong that you gave him extra chances anyway. And he didn't take him. He was a fool. I pray, O oh God, that we would not be fools. I pray, Lord, that as we reach out to our friends and family members, you would give us a boldness. Because, Lord, you know ahead of time those who are going to choose you. So because you've known ahead of time, you have chosen them. And there are people around us who you have chosen that we are too bashful to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Lord, I pray that you would break through our self-absorbed love and that we would love selflessly by telling people around us about Jesus. So, Lord, they can believe and be saved. And I pray if there's anyone here in this room or anyone watching this broadcast who has never accepted you as Savior and Lord, that they would come to you right now and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I choose you to be my Savior and Lord. And I thank you for choosing me to be your follower. Please come into my life, wash my sin away, and I promise to follow you for the rest of my life. I will obey you. I will worship and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.